0: Hi everyone, I'm Rebecca Gagan and this is Waving Not Drowning, a UVic Bounce podcast. Today's episode is being recorded on the unceded and unsurrendered territories of the Wasanich and Lekwungen peoples. In today's episode of Waving Not Drowning, I talk with Dr. Louise Chim, an Associate Teaching Professor in the Department of Psychology. Dr. Chim teaches introductory psychology, statistical methods in psychology and cultural psychology. She is interested in finding ways to facilitate student engagement and learning in large classes and how cultural context and emotions shape these processes. Louise was awarded the UVic Social Sciences Early Career Teaching Award in 2019. Currently, she's also a casual developmental psychologist, continuously learning about how her own child makes sense of the world. In our conversation, Louise shares with me some of her experience of being a Chinese-Canadian undergraduate student at Harvard University, where she had been recruited to play women's ice hockey. Louise talks about how in her very earliest experience of um, psychology at uh, Harvard, she realized that so much of the research and studies that had been conducted um, in that field were really on uh, majority populations and that there were many populations that were not represented in that research. And this realization really motivated Louise to want to enter into um, the field of psychology and to really work um, and advocate for changes. Louise also talks about um, issues of representation and identity at the university, more specifically in what is really one of the most powerful moments in this episode, Louise talks about how as an undergraduate student, she had certain ideas about you know, what a professor looked like and who was entitled to holding knowledge. And that some of these ideas have really stayed with her even now as she is a professor. We talk about anti-racist education And Louise shares how in her own classes, she really um, embraces and teaches with an anti-racist pedagogy. But importantly, Louise also uh, reminds us and acknowledges that there is still so much work to do and that students and professors alike need to relentlessly Investigate, interrogate, and examine our own assumptions, our own stereotypes that we hold, and that this work must be ongoing and rigorous in order to really um, engage in anti racist pedagogy. I'm Rebecca Gagan here today with Dr. Louise Chim. And this is waving, not drowning. Hi, Louise. It's really uh, so wonderful to be able to talk with you today. How are you doing?
1: Hi, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm just really excited to be on this podcast. I've heard really great things about it, so I'm yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share share my story here. Things are good. I mean, for the most part, right? There seems to be this hope in sight. I am. Uh, I'm hoping that we'll all be soon vaccinated with our first dose soon, um, but I think things are also hard. We're, we're in the middle of essentially a lockdown, um, and I recognize that I have a lot of privilege through this whole pandemic. Um, I have a stable occupation. Uh, I have a, a son who's three years old. He's still in daycare. He was in daycare throughout the entire pandemic, so there was not a time where I was teaching uh, online and having to care for for uh, a a toddler um but it's also hard i i moved to victoria from from california and i was really excited to get a job at uvic because uh, i have a lot of extended family in vancouver and i thought wow it's so close we can see each other all the time and and we had for a while but uh this lockdown has you know really made me feel like uh we do live on an island and that it's really hard to uh to be able to see people, even if they're just a ferry ride away, so I think that's been hard for me not to see my extended family. Um, it's been hard for my family. Uh, my my kid is the first uh, grandkid of the family, and uh, you know, kids just grow up so quickly and develop so quickly at, at those, those younger ages. And I think they they really are sad that they're missing out on that. So I think I think that's been really hard. Um, I think more recently. Uh, thinking about how to be an anti-racist, how do I contribute and perpetuate the racism that exists um, and reflecting on what I can do, especially as an educator um, to be anti-racist. The pandemic, there's been sort of an increase in anti-Asian racism as well. So that's been really interesting to see the sort of increase in awareness in anti-Asian racism. And for me, I know you can't see me on a podcast, uh, but I am Asian Canadian, and I think I'm feeling a bit more empowered seeing other people in my community engage in this activism. So that's been sort of a need to reflect on. And finally, the biggest thing I think of the pandemic for me is uh, teaching and learning as we've all adapted both students and instructors on how do we teach and learn in an online environment? And... You know, as much as it's been such a challenge, I think it's really pushed me as an instructor. I've grown uh, thinking about how do I make learning more inclusive? How can we leverage the technology to make it more more inclusive? Um, For example, now being able to do things like caption our recordings uh, or caption even our live sessions for students. this notion of not just lecturing, that we know that Zoom fatigue is a real thing and lecturing is is, uh, listening to a lecture online can be quite uh, challenging. So providing different ways of learning the material that's not lecture-based. So even though it's been a really hard year of teaching and learning, I think we can take a lot from this and we can grow as instructors and we can grow as students that hopefully will bring forward in the ways that we teach and learn. a lot of people said, oh, I can't wait until we go back to face-to-face. It can be normal again. Hmm. And right, um, someone I follow on Twitter, uh, her name's VG Sathy. Uh, she said, I hope we don't go back to normal because online, we've learned other ways to be more inclusive. So I hope that we take these lessons um, into our teaching, into our learning, Mm -hmm. when we go back to face to face. So I certainly hope that's the case. Yeah,
0: I couldn't agree more, I think. And I I also find myself now, when I start to use that phrase of going back to quote, unquote, normal, I catch myself now. And don't say that, because I think, while we certainly want to go back to um, a time where we didn't have to live in certain ways because of COVID. What you've shared, and certainly I agree with this, is that um, the pandemic has provided us with the this kind of portal, right? Through which to um, change structures and systems that yeah. aren't working. And yeah. that when you've shared, Louise, about how you, um, you know, a big hurdle, of course, is learning how to teach online. But as you're doing that, you're also opening up learning, right, so that it can be more inclusive. And um, you're thinking about questions of accessibility. And these are questions that I think, as educators, we've not thought about nearly as much as we should have, and that the pandemic Mm. has brought all of that to light for us. And you've also shared, Louise, that at the same time as we've been moving through the pandemic, uh, you've been reflecting on and um, having a chance to really think deeply about how to make your own classroom spaces, um, you know, inclusive in terms of, uh, how to be have those be anti-racist spaces. And so I think sometimes we, I, I don't think that any of us forget that at the same time as we're moving through the pandemic, we are um, also living through and learning from the George Floyd uh, tr- trial uh, yeah. discussions around mm-hmm. anti-Asian racism. So it sounds to me as if all of these things were happening at once. And while those events uh, would be challenging. You've shared, Louise, that they were opportunities for you for learning and for growth, and that you see that those are opportunities for your students as well. Would that be accurate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, you know, in thinking about this pandemic as opportunities, I think we all have this natural reaction to try to so i think oh well what what can we draw from from the sort of difficult situation what are the what are the benefits and what uh, what have we learned and i think that's sort of what i've been reflecting on now that it's been over a year of the pandemic like what 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 can we learn from this and what what sort of positive outcomes can we draw um, i do think i still have a long ways to go into making my classroom inclusive and being more anti racist right i think a lot of us want to claim that we're not racist, but if you're not being anti-racist, then you're you're perpetuating your right. perpetuating that problem. Um, and trying to do a better job in my classroom um, in incorporating ways to be anti-racist, um, and I think that's something natural we can do easily in a classroom um, that teaches about psychology, that teaches about cultural psychology. These are sort of the classes I teach um, at the university, but. Um, I need to do a better job at that and I hope through this and I hope through uh, thinking about my classes and um, I think I need to do a better job and I think having it on my mind constantly as we're working through um, developing our courses and revitalizing our courses and improving our courses is an important important thing for all of us.
0: Yeah absolutely and I think that um the piece around not going backwards, right? So not going back to whatever normal that was. Yeah. That we reject that, yeah. and that no, we're 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 trying to grow here and learn and still learning, right? I, I totally agree with you that one thing that this pandemic has taught me is is how much, and it's not just the pandemic; it's everything that's happened in this past yes. year, right? Yeah. That. I have still so much to learn um, as a teacher, as a human, and I don't want to go back to whatever state that was in terms of how I thought about myself in relation to others um, and that we just go forward and uh, keep learning and, and keep growing. And I don't think that's the same thing as... You know, I've always been nervous about, well, I don't want to have this kind of Pollyannish attitude about the pandemic. I think this is very different. This is a kind of critical, um, you know, hope or critical sort of optimism around thinking that we can improve, we can make things better, we can uh, be more fully anti-racist, right? There are things that we can do. um, And there are lessons that this year has taught us that we must not lose track of.
1: Absolutely. So, um, and I recognize the role that students play in this too. That's right. Which is great, because I think students in our classroom. They're teaching, us. They're, they're teaching us about these things and, and calling us out when, yeah. when maybe we make mistakes. And that is fantastic too. And that's how we learn. So that yeah. is absolutely how we learn.
0: And so <laughs> yeah. um, Louise, you provided a very nice segue here because I want to talk to you, just bringing us back to thinking about students. And of course, you know that UVic Bounce is uh, really, it's faculty led, but it's um, student-centered. So it's about yes. how to... Um, you know, support students by sharing faculty stories of their own experiences as students. Um, And I have, you know, wanted to talk to you for so long in order to just hear more about your experience as a student, maybe some of the difficulties and challenges you had. And uh, I'm hopeful that you you might be willing to share some of that with us today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And funny enough, when we were trying to plan to uh, set this up between the two of us, we had set on a date and, you know, this is a story of knowing when you have too much on your plate. I had to I had to email you, Rebecca, and say, I, you know, I thought I would be done with the end of term by now, but I'm not. And I'm completely overwhelmed. And I want, I, I felt bad about it, but I wanted to uh, make sure I took the time to uh, prepare myself for this podcast. And, you know, your reply was great. Like, don't even worry about it. Like, I completely understand. We can schedule this, reschedule this for another time. And so, um, it's, it's a constant reminder to ourselves, like, hey, sometimes we have too much on our plates and it's okay to say no, or it's okay to push something off until uh, later.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that that's such a important piece. I wish that I had learned that when, or understood that when I was an undergrad student, yeah. right? That like, it's okay to set those boundaries or put something off and people will understand. You just have to communicate that right uh to your profs and and I think there's a lot of um compassion and and kindness right that's available to students if it's just communicated and then also yeah you can set those 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 boundaries too so
1: yeah no absolutely and I think that is something else we've learned from the pandemic with the whole stipulation of not requiring medical (laughs) notes or documentation for uh uh for you know makeup exams or extensions I think um, instructors have begun to realize, uh, you know, sometimes people do need those deadlines extended, or sometimes there needs to be other opportunities for students to uh, to, uh, to submit their work. So,
0: and that uh, you know, again, we are starting to, as a community, as a as a campus, yeah. start to make those important changes around, yes. um, you know, not needing those kinds of things, and that we can there can be extensions there without uh, medical notes and things like that, right? That we can make room and make space for people. So right. Louise, did you do your undergrad in the States?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I'll talk a little bit about my experience as a student um, and I'll preface it by uh, by just giving a little background of uh, who I am. So I uh, I'm Chinese Canadian. My, my parents immigrated here in the 1970s. Uh, so before I was born um, to, uh, uh, to Manitoba. Um, and then they started moving further. Uh, towards BC. So then they moved to Alberta and that's where I was born. I was born in Edmonton, Alberta. And then I grew up in uh, in Richmond, British Columbia, which I know some of my students also grown up there. We've sometimes connected about like, which high school did you go to uh, in (laughs) Richmond? Or, Or, you know, these days I have friends who are now teachers in high schools in in uh, in British Columbia in the Lower Mainland, and they'll say, "Oh, you were uh, you were you were at the same high school as my you know whatever teacher." So that's that's been really oh, interesting. Wow. Um, so I grew up in British Columbia. I grew up in, in, in Richmond, and um, and you no, know, did fairly well in school. Um, and I was lucky enough to go to school in the U.S. and have those opportunities for learning in a different cultural context. So. Um, I went to school at uh, Harvard College, which, you know, people have sort of connotations of the types of people who go to very prestigious universities like Harvard. Um, you might have some assumptions about about me now, thinking, "Oh, wow, Dr. Chim or Louise went to uh, went to Harvard University." Um, and I think, particularly being uh, as an Asian immigrant. are certain connotations of the model minority myth of people who go to harvard wow you must have um, had parents that made you study like 24 hours a day and you must have only had straight a's and if you got a b people were upset and i i want to acknowledge that um at least in my experience and my family um that wasn't the typical sort of quote unquote um stereotype of uh, of the asian uh canadian students um I did well in school, but my my parents and, and uh, my brother uh, really supported me in whatever I wanted to do. So um, I did well in school, fairly well, but I, I went to a public school. Um, I did play the violin. I think that's also a, a stereotype <laughs> of, of Asian Canadians uh, and Americans, that you play some kind of musical instrument, particularly violin or piano. Um, I will also say I played the baritone saxophone, though, uh, in high school, which is uh, sort of different there um, and I also played ice hockey growing up and so um and it just happened to be these these combination of of things that I did in high school um led me to apply to Harvard um, in particular that I played ice hockey and actually uh, my brother was one of my coaches for ice hockey oh, wow. he's he's seven years older than me um, And so he really supported that piece. And I I managed to uh, get recruited to go to Harvard to um, not only go to school, but also play on the ice hockey team. Okay, I
0: had no idea um, that Harvard had like a
1: a women's ice hockey team. Harvard has a women's ice hockey team. Um, Yeah, ice hockey is quite uh, big on the East Coast of the US. Um, Harvard also, this is something that made me feel intimidated with that. We have Olympians. We had Olympians on our team that played okay. on the women's Canadian national team, as well as the uh, American national team. Uh, so it was quite a strong program. Wow, I, I had
0: no idea, Louise.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so that's my secret talent that people don't expect out of me, I guess. Um, I was nowhere near as good as the Olympians on our team. Uh, so don't think like, oh, you know, Louise could have made it to the Olympics. I was nowhere close to that. But um. I did get to play with with these amazing athletes and people. Um, So that was really interesting. Um, So yeah, so my student experience might be a little different, but uh, with similar challenges and struggles for sure. Um, So at Harvard, I think I struggled a lot with with moving to a new country. I know it feels like Canada is very similar to the US in a lot of respects, but. I think, you know, moving to a new country, living in a dorm, being away from family for the first time, and uh, I think the university culture is very different. Like, you high school, um, at least at my high school, you, you you go to your classes, you do your work, but you know these people who um, who are at Harvard, that culture, they were just amazing human beings who, uh, in some cases, were a lot more prepared for university. That maybe some of them even already finished a lot of their first year classes, they could move on to their second year classes um, through their high school credits. Uh, so I, I think that was a, a big struggle. I think struggling with being Canadian, um, also being Asian and being immersed in this entirely different culture. I remember first going there and, um, you know just like you Vic, they have club days or whatever where you go around and you learn about the different clubs and organizations on campus you could be part of and someone from the uh, Asian American club on campus was like oh do you want to join the Asian American uh, club on campus And I was like well I'm not Asian American I'm Asian Canadian so what a jerk I must have sounded like like it's all about sort of that uh you know, Asian American Canadian identity. And I think the part problem was I didn't identify with being American. And so that, that sort of pushed me off of, off of that group. Um, but yeah, as a student, I in my first year, I didn't know really what I wanted to do um, in undergrad. I, um, I wanted to be pre-med, whatever that meant. I didn't really know what that meant, I think. I think I just thought, wow, I did well in my science classes. So pre-med sort of makes sense. <laughs> So I did take a bunch of the pre, pre-med classes in my first year, uh, but I was lucky in the second semester of, my, uh, of uh, the first year, um, I took an intro to psychology course, um, and I'd never taken psychology before, um, and it just, it just opened my eyes. Um, taking intro psych with a very passionate and engaged professor really shaped my interests, Um, and got me excited about psychology. Um, And so some of you might know and some of you probably have had me as your instructor for Psych 100 because Psych 100 is a very large class and I teach a lot of it. Um, I feel a great sense of responsibility teaching that course because that was the course that got me really excited about psychology and I hope at least some students share that um, that excitement and interest and passion after taking intro psych with us. Um, so
0: you feel a lot of pressure, Louise. I do. <laughs> to give that yeah. to students, yeah, to give them what you had, yeah.
1: Um, and you know, my my intro psych instructor, uh, it's uh, Dr. Daniel Gilbert, who has written even pop psychology books, you can see he has like a TED talk that has been listened to, I don't know, probably millions of times. Um, he's a really, uh, really engaging instructor. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to be on that other end as, as a professor. Um, but it, it shaped my interest and got me really excited about psychology. Um, after taking that in the spring, I was like, oh, I want to be a research assistant. How do I, how do I get involved in psychology research? So I was lucky enough, um, I went back to Vancouver um, for the summer and volunteered in a lab out at UBC um, and then started volunteering in labs um, in my second year at Harvard. Um, we're lucky enough to have these and I think we do too. We have, um, you, get, you can get course credit for, for working in a lab um, and so we do have that here at UVic as well. I think they are Psych 390 and 490 which are independent studies in psychology And so that gets you uh, a bit more experience in what what psychology research is like as opposed to just just learning it in your classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think reflecting back on that experience of why I was really excited about psychology, I also thought I could make an impact because I I listened to the different phenomena we talked about, um, particularly in social psychology. And I felt like I was hearing... About studies and research that didn't represent my own experiences, um, and I know, you know, an anecdote is not data, <laughs> right? That you do have to uh, collect those data and think about, okay, what what does this what does this actually represent? But um, I think it was starting to plant the seeds of recognizing that a lot of the psychology research that we do. Um, is on samples that are not necessarily representative of the population. Um, first, that a lot of the studies are done on psychology undergraduate students, right? That so they're doing it as part of the you know research bonus participation or class credit things like that, where that's the population that we study sort of different phenomena. And so, how are they represented? They're you know maybe more educated than other uh, than the general population. Uh, we do know also predominantly. Um, these samples are uh, are white participants. Uh, so, I think taking these classes uh, in undergrad and being a psychology major in undergrad really sparked my interest in um, making sure that our psychology is maybe more representative of, of larger populations, um, of more diverse populations.
0: Yeah, and this, Louise, I could be wrong, but it sounds like. Um... There's this connection here between that moment of being on campus at, at club stay and someone saying, Oh, do you want to join the Asian American, you know, club? and you feeling in that moment, um, that you were invisible in certain ways, right? That your own identity was not seen, and how could you communicate that, that you were, um, uh, Chinese Canadian and that, um, You know, this to me sounds like it's also connected into your motivation and your interest in psychology and like, and in terms of how to make that more uh, representative so that people can feel seen in this, in the sense that their experiences are represented in those studies. And so to me, it seems that it's all of um, all of a piece in, in a way.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a that's a really really interesting insight about that uh, that experience of being labeled as Asian American and and wanting that piece of my identity to be, reflect that Asian Canadian experience. Um, and I think, yeah, my interest in psychology really grew out of wanting to find wanting to gain a better understanding of mm-hmm. of my own psychology. And I think that's why a lot of students are interested in Psych 100. We're, we're humans. We want to understand how humans work, right? That's and right. particularly Our own experiences. How uh, to understand
0: our experiences. I think students take, uh, uh, we're all going to say this about our own disciplines. I think students take literature because <laughs> likewise, it's, you know, I want to try to better understand uh, the human experience and my own experience, right? Yeah. But it sounds like that's what you were attracted to, and as you say, this very, um, inspiring, um, uh, instructor who, who really grabbed your, your interest. And so you carried on and did an undergrad then in psychology. Yep.
1: Yeah. So I came out, I did my undergrad in psychology. Um, I ended up doing an honors thesis. Um, and then I, didn't go straight into graduate school. Um, I sort of knew I wanted to go into graduate school, but, um, but uh, I wanted to get more experience in what cultural psychology was about. So, um, and I didn't do my honors thesis in cultural psychology. There weren't really cultural psychologists um, at Harvard um, at the time. And so um, I took that time to work in a lab. I went back to uh, Vancouver and I worked as a research assistant and a lab manager. Um, out at UBC in a psychology department. So I think that that is one of the things when, when students come to me thinking, well, I need to go straight from undergrad to graduate school, I say, you know, take that time to think about what you want to do in graduate school. Um, I think I was fortunate enough to find a paid position. I know those aren't always available to us um, as, uh, as a lab manager um, between undergrad and graduate school. Um, And honestly, that was probably the reason why I got into graduate school was because I took those two years off. I got to know um, the professors in the labs I worked in. I got to refine what my research interests were. um, And that made me a much stronger candidate for uh, pursuing uh, my master's and PhD. Um, I also think taking that time to just sort of work and then not be a student um, helped Reignite the interest in being a student again uh, that sometimes you can burn out a little bit from from uh, from being a student and taking that time off was, was really helpful. So I, I honestly people who are interested in grad school, I do recommend that taking that time to see, OK, well, a, am I really interested in this and b, gaining those experiences that will that will help you um, help you be a better candidate in, in a competitive ex- environment like graduate school.
0: Because being a student is its own identity. In, and so there can yeah. be a way in which you inhabit that identity for four, five, six years of an undergrad. And that's sort of what you know. And it can it can be so um helpful, as you say, to take a step out of that in a way and do something else and be able to reflect and decide if if that's the path that you that you want to, to follow, because I think there can be a way in which that role of being a student, it gets a certain momentum and it feels like, well, this is what I know. And this is Mm -hmm. what I do. I know how to be a student now, right? By the end of your undergrad, you, you probably have a pretty good sense of how to be a student and how Mm -hmm. to inhabit that role. And I think that, um, it can be a difficult step to sort of pull back from it, in order to get some perspective on it and decide if that's what you really want or if that's what you know how to do now. And so you just kind of want to keep going with that, right? So I think, um, like you, I always um, encourage students to take just a bit of time to to think to think about what they want to do and try on some other roles, right? Before yeah. uh stepping stepping back into it. And so Louise, did you find that you in that time, um, or I guess maybe when you went to grad school, like did you find mentors that really also helped to push you um to to support you
1: going through? Yeah, so absolutely I I don't come from a family that really knows academia, right? Like I think Actually, I went to a talk, um, maybe last week or the week before, um, showcasing how a lot of academics, a lot of professors come from families who are also professors. Um, And so uh, while my mom is a a teacher, she's an elementary school music teacher. (laughs) So I do have that sort of emphasis on education placed on me. Um, Didn't really know much about what it would mean to pursue graduate school in psychology. Um, And so... Uh, my experience as an undergrad, uh, I think, was really interesting. I I took a lot of courses in undergrad um, in psychology. Even most of my electives, I chose to take psychology courses as well. Um, really immersed myself in that. Um, and most of my professors, almost all my all my psychology professors that I took courses from, were white men. Um, and I don't know part of it. I think about this. Um, you know, obviously, part of it might be just the lack of representation in academia at the time, and I know it is getting better. But also, I wonder if part of it is me having this notion of who has the knowledge that I can I can um, absorb, and it's you know these these white men in psychology who know everything about that, and. Um, I, I do want to recognize that bias that I might have and other people might have of um, what professors should look like, and I and I do feel that as I'm teaching now, I I wonder if students think that I have uh, I I am I'm able to get them to to learn or can they learn from me uh, given that I'm uh, I'm a woman and I I. I I am Chinese, like, and and I was young at the time when I first started uh, in my position at UVic, a little older now, but hopefully still young looking. (laughs) Um, Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) But whether students students feel that, but so most, those weren't the people that I, I got mentorship from. The professors felt inaccessible and not necessarily that they were inaccessible. It's just that perception you have as a student, as an undergraduate student, thinking, well, um, you know, the professor won't remember me, or the professor doesn't have time for me. Um, Now, obviously, being on the other end, I I welcome students to come to my office hours, and I do want to get to know my students. Um, Especially, it's hard to do that in a class of 300 in intro psych, Mm -hmm. and so the students that I do get to know isn't everyone in my class, unfortunately, but are the students who who come talk to me in office hours or after class to ask some questions. Um, So, where I sought mentorship was from the graduate students actually um, at the university because those were, uh, as I mentioned, I, I worked in a lot of labs. I volunteered in labs in my undergrad uh, career. I did my honors thesis. and so uh, I got to know graduate students and the graduate students who um, who are you know bipoc um, or women, and learning a little bit about what it meant to be a graduate student from them. Uh, I remember being, um, in, in my honors thesis year, uh, in, in our lab, um, we had s- something like five or six of us doing honors thesis. So it was a lot of us. So they actually had a weekly seminar for us to talk a little bit about honors thesis. And it was led by graduate students. Um, and I remember the moment when someone told me, hey, like if you want to go to graduate school, um, people will actually pay you to go to graduate school. <laughs> and it's like (laughs) my like mind blew I was like what like I could get paid to do this I could get paid to to be uh to be a graduate student in psychology and now I recognize not all universities are um, have the funding to do this Uh, uh, but I was fortunate enough to um, apply to many graduate schools who they give you a stipend you don't have to pay um you don't have to pay tuition they cover that tuition and that's uh, I think something specific to the US. So I will note that here, but I think Canadian graduate students do still have to pay tuition. But at the same time, tuition in the US is a lot more uh, 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 more expensive. So uh, they do pay for your tuition there and they they provide you a stipend. So I wouldn't have known that if I was just going about my day and thinking, "Oh, okay, well, I, you know, I majored in psychology in undergrad. I should go to graduate school and apply. I wouldn't have known that there are these opportunities to actually support support graduate students um, in pursuing their masters and PhD. So uh, having those mentors there to, to, to tell me these things or to think about okay, well, um, graduate school is competitive. You know, if you're thinking and working with one professor, they might be taking one student that year out of however many applications. How do you how do you make yourself competitive for that? Uh, and doing things like this is where I got that advice to, hey, maybe um, take some time off and work in a lab, see, see what you're interested in. So having those graduate student mentors, I think was really good for me who, um, who maybe came from similar um, backgrounds or had similar experiences. Uh, so even though maybe I didn't get that support or I didn't seek out that support from professors, um, it was really nice to be able to seek it out from someone some people I felt that were more accessible to me, which were which were graduate students,
0: yeah. And also, Louise, I think just you know, backtracking a little bit to to what you've been saying around representation and and thinking about your own role as a professor and how when you were a graduate uh, an undergraduate student, um you saw that, okay, here are these, you know, white, male psychology profs who are you know represented as the holders of knowledge right like they are the ones who who know and who teach and I think when we go you know and certainly it is starting to change now but the representations as you've said of what a professor looks like so a student you know, going through um, undergrad and not seeing themselves represented in the faculty in that way, in the discipline that they want to go through. Um, it's not surprising to me that even now you you wonder and worry a bit about what kinds of ideas students might have about those who share knowledge those who teach those who research Mm -hmm. that um, what are their ideas of of what a professor looks like and it's also then not surprising to me that you turned that you found support and mentorship in those around you those your fellow students who probably were in a similar position to you right of looking Mm -hmm. out at you know the professoriate or whatever and realizing well like. I don't know that that's going to be the mentor that I need, like my, I need to have my experience validated, but also I need to have my experience, um, uh, sort of encouraged by those who are also, um, in a position to under, understand. And so, um, I, I just think what you've shared Louise around that concern that is still with you, because I imagine there are students listening to this who are thinking about, you know, being a particular, you know, being a particular kind of doctor, or, um, you know, going into uh, research, going into all kinds of professions and wondering if there is a place for them there, because there aren't those kinds of models necessarily, right? I mean, I think things are, um, as I say, changing, but, but we know, as we've just talked about, there's still so much work to be done in that. And so, um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of, there's a post that I see on Instagram um, that's put out by um, uh, a group like Women in Science. And they're all, they have a poster that's like, this is what a scientist looks like. And it's a picture, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, of a woman or, uh, and and sometimes a woman of color or something, but it's um, a a kind of reminder, right, of what, what ideas do we carry? And you talked to Louise about like stereotype, like even going way back to thinking about Oh, there was a stereotype of what um, uh, a Chinese Canadian student like myself would be like in terms of getting into Harvard, right? Playing the violin, uh, you know, all of those things that these are those ideas, these representations that need to be challenged. And it sounds like the way that you kind of dealt with that at the time was to reach out to those in your cohort.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think sometimes it can be hard to know where to reach out, what opportunities are available, because I think, you know, I happen to be, these weren't things I was explicitly thinking of doing in undergrad that having these sort of graduate student mentors, it just, uh, sort of naturally happened. But what if you're a student now? I'm like, okay, well, how do I, how do I get these mentors? Where do I look to? Um, and, you know, one opportunity that I did was, yeah, get, get involved in research labs and, and get to know people through um, those means or, you know, reach out to, in psychology, your, your teaching assistants are all, are all graduate students in psychology. So reach out to them, go to their office hours. Uh, sometimes they're not very well attended and they would love to have someone chat with them, uh, especially we talked about this year. All our office hours are on zoom so you're someone sometimes just sitting there on zoom like oh will i see anyone else today i know because will somebody come it. and visit me yeah. please will someone come and visit me i've been home all day by myself on the computer um so so our tas and um, your your professors want to see you but yeah if you feel like i you know i, I can't go go see my I profess because I certainly felt like that as an undergrad. Um, I will say it's okay to come see, see your professors, but if it feels a bit more comfortable to maybe go to see your TA, I, I encourage that as well. Um, I'll also make a shout out in psychology. Uh, there's there's a few different uh, student organizations, student-led organizations, which uh, I think could be in other places where you could reach out to other, uh, other uh, students who might have more experience uh, in your major. And I know across all disciplines, this is the case. So in psychology, we have um, we have a few different clubs, um, but I wanted to highlight uh, a fairly new club we have called Unpacking Psychology. Uh, it's a student-led, both graduate and undergraduate students. But I think they have a, I think it's fairly monthly, they have something called a diversity, T spelled T-E-A, where in face-to-face times, um, you'd get together, you could have some tea, uh, and you would get to talk to um, a professor, or graduate student interested in um, equity, diversity, inclusion-related issues. Um, and since then, obviously, they've moved it to online. I'm sure you could still bring your own tea with you, uh, but they have these opportunities where you can connect with people um, um, who who might serve as sort of your mentors, right? Like so. Um, Seeking out those sort of informal opportunities might be other ways to, to do that.
0: And as we as we were talking, Louise, before um, we started recording our our session uh, today, our, our our episode, we were mm-hmm. just talking about how those mentorship um, opportunities are really starting to grow at the university, mm-hmm. ones that are really focused on um, diverse experiences and encouraging. Um, you know inclusivity so i think we'll just start to see more and more of those kinds of mentorship opportunities um uh, coming, uh, to, uh, a campus near you. And I hadn't heard about this one. So, um, I'll put that also in the show notes, just some links oh, so that, uh, students can, um, also access that, um, after, after the episode. So yeah. Louise, um, just, you know, thinking not necessarily about final words, but pretty close to final words. Mm-hmm. What, um, what do you, you know, what would you want to leave students with in terms of thinking about just, uh, you know, I know we're all learning and so we're still learning and um, everyone I've talked to is very hesitant to say, uh, okay, I'm not giving advice uh, because <laughs> I'm still learning too. But yeah. if you were to offer, I guess, some words of support just based on your own experience or some, you know, guidance, um, what might you say to, to students, whether they're undergrad or graduate students who are, um, you know, going through their academic journey now?
1: Yeah, so in terms of support, just words of advice or support for students based off of my own lived experiences, um, I think one thing is to try to find mentors to support you. Um, but also in exchange, uh, mentor others who could benefit from what you've learned as well. Uh, you know, if you're listening to this and, and you're a fourth year undergraduate student, you have learned a lot. As Rebecca had said, like, you've learned how to be a student, how to be fairly successful at it. So um, thinking about how even as, as undergraduates, you can mentor others who maybe think, well, I, you know, I didn't feel like my own experiences were represented in my uh, undergraduate career. How can I help support those who might feel that same way, whether it be, um, you know, your race or ethnicity, whether it be maybe that you're a first-generation uh, first student, maybe other people in your, uh, in your family haven't gone to university. And so coming to university was a very uh, new, interesting cultural experience for you. Um, but finding, the, uh, finding mentors, seeking out mentors, but also um, remembering that you yourself has, you've gained experiences as well that others could learn from. Um, and you know, in terms of seeking mentors, they don't have to be formal mentors, although it sounds like there's more of this coming, which I think is important because um, you can't just go to someone and say, hello, would you like to be my mentor? Right? Like that's a very awkward conversation <laughs> to have and very unnatural. Um, and so to have these, this infrastructure in place to have mentors for first year students or for uh, fourth year students, for graduate students, I think is really important. Um, and so, in terms of that, you know, they don't have to be your professors, but they can be, you know, graduate students. They can work in lab. They can be upper year students in an organization. That's, uh, you know, psychology. We have a few different student organizations that um, that are very inviting to uh, to encourage people to come in and come and talk to them and get involved. Um, so I think that's the main main piece I'd like to highlight, um, and then the other piece is to maybe recognize. Uh, Recognize the biases that we might have and who we view as being worthy of being in academia Um, for ourselves, whether you're you're a student that isn't well represented in academia, recognizing that, hey, um, maybe this can change, Um, but also uh, recognizing that you might hold these biases yourself uh, in your classes. Uh, of, of, like, as we said, who, who is the one that? Uh, who are the people who can hold the knowledge in psychology, and that maybe um, recognizing ourselves like it's not necessarily that uh, that older white male prof with, uh, uh, you know, who also does have a lot of knowledge, but other other people can have that knowledge as well, uh, and and to recognize that uh, and try to try to perpetuate other ways in which other ways of being other other people who can be um, who can be professors as well who can be in that who can do research who can be in academia
0: and I think while you didn't necessarily intend to come back full circle Louise you you have in such a thoughtful way I think brought us back to almost where we started in terms of thinking about your own experience through the pandemic and things that it's highlighted for you and that commitment to um, um, creating um, anti-racist spaces in your classroom and elsewhere. Um, But also you've talked about here, and I I think it's so crucial that students lived experience um, needs to be represented and it also needs to be shared and so when you suggest that students don't necessarily have to look to professors as mentors they can look to each other right and that mm-hmm. they they have experience that is valuable to other students right so that they themselves right. should think about themselves as mentors in some ways right that yeah. they can support their classmates and also just as we were saying about um you know being able to share their experience but then also um, as a way of thinking about their own futures um and their and the and the possibilities for their own lives being able to investigate their own um, assumptions or biases uh, about, you know, what a professor looks like, who gets to have the knowledge. And Mm -hmm. I attended uh, a workshop uh, by uh, Mothers Against uh, Racism. And it was, um, I'm a parent, and it was about how to raise um, Mm -hmm. an anti-racist child. And I was listening. Mm -hmm. And one of the things um, that the facilitator shared was just how important it is to, like, be actively anti-racist by constantly looking at your own biases and investigating those assumptions Mm -hmm. that you hold. And I I have to say, Louise, that I think the piece you've talked about around, um, and that you still carry with you, right? About professors, even though you are one yourself, right? (laughs) And wondering what assumptions students have too, right? I think, um, this this kind of work also covers um, sort of so many areas of the work that we do as as students as teachers um, in terms of really trying to ref- reflect on that and as you say seek out mentors in those. Uh, who are, who are sitting in the class beside you in the chair beside you. I mean, or maybe not right now, but hopefully soon. (laughs) Right. Uh, And and, and those opportunities. So Louise, thank you so much for sharing your experience uh, in your story with us today, because I know that um, I've, personally learned a lot from it. And, um, I just have found your reflections to be so thoughtful and helpful. And I know that uh, our listeners will surely feel the same. So thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you very much for this opportunity. It was nice to, uh, nice to chat and, uh, you know, I'm sure some of these people who are listening now will, will be in my psychology <laughs> classes. So feel free to say hi, uh, hi to me after class or, uh, or in my office hours. Uh, and thank you so much, Rebecca, for this opportunity. I, um, I've really enjoyed yeah. it. Thanks Louise.
0: Bye for now. Thank you.
1: In next week's episode
0: of Waving Not Drowning, I talk with Dr. Sarah Hunt. An Assistant Professor and Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Political Ecology in Environmental Studies at the University of Victoria. In our conversation, Sarah talks about her experience of being an Indigenous student at UVic and some of the real struggles that she went through in terms of um, engaging in the classroom and in her research, with uh, really difficult and traumatizing material around colonialism. And she talks about how she found ways of accessing support and also of articulating and really determining her needs. I really hope that you'll tune in for this inspiring and thoughtful episode. You can keep listening to episodes of Waving, Not Drowning on Anchor FM, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. We'd love it if you would give us a like and a follow on Instagram at uvicbounce. Tune in next week for another great conversation. Until then, be well.